0: The instinct not to breathe underwater is so strong that it overcomes the agony of running out of air. The drowning person doesn't inhale until he's on the verge of losing consciousness. Chemical sensors in the brain trigger an involuntary breath that is called the break point. Jonah should have come to that point after disappearing under the waves of the Mediterranean, But God had better plans in mind. Dave Wurtson, our Truth Encounter study leader, opens to Jonah chapter 1 and the plans for redemption, not death. There's nothing more frightening than being in the ocean in the sea. As you open your Bible this morning to Jonah chapter 1, I wanted you to feel what it would be like to be on the decks of a little Phoenician ship, not one of these big fishing boats but a a little Phoenician ship. In Jonah chapter 1, we're introduced to the only prophet who totally disobeyed the word of the Lord. We began the book, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And instead of Jonah obeying the Lord and going to Nineveh, he goes down to Joppa, which is on the Mediterranean coastline, and he sails in a boat headed for Spain. That's as far away from Assyria as you can get. But the Lord wasn't through with Jonah. And we begin to find out that the Lord Yahweh, our living God, is a God of creation. And he even used the ocean. He used the Mediterranean Sea and he hurled a gigantic storm. The stormed in the Mediterranean for a little Phoenician ocean-going vessel from the time of Jonah, about 800 years before Christ. You can imagine what the sailors were feeling. I want you to enter into that today. I want you to think about being at sea and I want you to think about the tremendous power of that storm and your life is threatening because that's what is happening when it says in verse 4 that the Lord, that Yahweh, look at Jonah chapter 1 verse 4, the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. The picture here is like the Lord of creation hurls, like you'd hurl a javelin, he hurls this horrible storm at the ship. The sailors began to respond to this, and these are seasoned sailors. And it says all the sailors were afraid, and they were they were just filled with terror. And they cried out, they cried out, each one of them to their own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below the deck. And when he lay down, he fell into like he was in an, on an anesthetic. He's sleeping in the hold of the ship. The captain went to him and he said, How in the world can you be asleep? I want you to get up and call on your God. Maybe he'll notice us. Maybe he'll understand and see us and do something. And we will not die. We will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who in the world is responsible for this horrible calamity. They cast lots. They threw dice, probably white dice and black dice. It was mixed. And if it came up, you know, all black, it meant you were the chosen one, the designated one, or I'm not exactly sure how they do it. It was kind of a yes and no kind of a thing. And they went all around the deck hands of that ship in the midst of this this raging sea, and suddenly it fell upon Jonah. These are pagan Phoenician sailors. The pagan Phoenician sailors, they asked Jonah, tell us who's responsible for doing this. Why are we in trouble? What do you do? Where do you come from? And where is your country? From what people are you? Jonah responds, I am a believer. I'm a Hebrew. And I worship the Lord. I worship the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified the sailors, and they asked, what have you done? They knew that he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them about it. And the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up, Jonah said. Throw me overboard into the sea and it will become calm. Because I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. But instead, the men, the sailors, they did their best to get back to land. But they could not for the sea grew even wilder before them. They cried to the Lord, O oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable because we're going to have to kill an innocent man. You can feel the heartbreak of these unbelieving sailors. Then they took Jonah, they threw him overboard, and immediately the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly reverenced and feared the Lord. uses the, the word, the covenant Lord of Israel. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord. And they made a vow to him. Now that didn't happen right on the deck of the ship. They probably either made it to shore. They might even have made it back to Israel... ...and gone up to Jerusalem... ...and offered a sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem. And the writer wants us to understand... ...that these sailors began to get connected... ...with the living God of creation. I want to talk to you, first of all... ...about this perfect storm. And I want to talk to you about an incredible insight... ...that the book of Jonah has... ...into the dynamic of God's people... ...with unbelieving people... ...of God's people with those that are unbelievers. How many of you know some people that don't claim... ...to know Jesus Christ as their Savior? Anybody here know some people that don't claim... ...to know Jesus as their Savior? Anybody know some people like that? So you know what I'm talking about, okay? I want you to begin to think... ...as we're studying the book of Jonah... How do you feel about those people? How does your heart respond to those people? We began introducing that to you, and all the way through this book, as we study the fourth chapter in the book of Jonah, I want to be asking myself, and I want you to ask yourself, how do you feel about the unbelieving people that are all around you? Because I'm afraid that some of us, that some of us don't really care about these unbelieving people. Jonah didn't care about the sailors at all. How do I know that? I mean, a guy that's asleep in the hold of the ship, I mean, everybody else on this ship is coming unglued. They're offering, you know, prayer and to every God, to Dagon, the Philistine God, and probably to Ashtar, the female consort of Baal. They're probably praying to the to Horus, the Egyptian god. I mean, they're just crying out to any God that might listen, just do anything to stop the storm. But what's God's man doing? The man that should have been committed to praying. The man that should have really been into this spiritual thing. That there really is supernatural forces that are behind creation. It's not just material. And we're in the midst of a life-threatening situation. The man that should have been praying, the man that should have been praying is not praying at all. And the men that I would never expect to pray, they're praying like crazy. Not to the true God, but they're praying. I want to ask you, I want to ask you, are you asleep in the hold of the ship? I think there are many believers that are asleep in the hold of the ship. I think many times in my own life, I'm asleep in the hold of the ship. I think there's a lot of you that think that that what we're doing this Sunday morning is the Jesus thing. And a lot of you claim to be born-again believers, and so you're doing your Jesus thing. Here we are today, and you know we're singing all these praises, and we pray to the Lord, and we rejoice in his word, and we're able to encourage each other, and we're kind of doing our Sunday thing, our God thing. But when we go out into the world tomorrow, when the kids start school, and a lot of you go back to your offices, a lot of you have the idea that the people that you're working with the people that you're working with, God's not really involved in their life. And God's not really concerned about them. And some of you have a lot of proof to back that up. Some of you work out there, you know, when you're working not in the big elite jobs, but you're working the hard jobs, you know, right by the, by the big electric furnace. And, and guys, when something goes wrong with the furnace, you know, they use some really God-filled language. But it's not what you're hearing me talk about this morning. And you hear a lot about damnation, but it's not the way you hear it. You hear it a little bit different, right? You're playing ball. Some of the kids are in football practice, and I remember those days. I remember those terrible summer, early September practices in, in Florida in September, where it was over 100 degrees, just like here. And, you know, as you're playing ball and things start to go wrong, and somebody elbows you right through your nose garden and you got blood hurling out of your nose, a tremendous Holy Spirit language comes out. But it's not worshipping the Lord. And what I find is that there's a lot of us as believers that start to get turned off by that. And we start being angry about that. And I want you to know that we should be angry against sin. We need to get really upset about sin. But the reason we need to get upset about sin is that sin destroys people. Sin harms their beautiful life. Sin cuts short their life. Sin messes up their relationships with others. Sin blows families apart. Sin is a horrible, terrible thing. And we need to hate what sin does because it's totally against the good plan that God has for us. I believe that it's very easy for us to begin to hate the sailors or that we're just indifferent towards the sailors. Jonah didn't even hate the sailors. He was totally unconcerned about the sailors and he's sleeping in the bottom of the ship because he's running away from God. And the wondrous thing that hits me in this text is though God's servant was asleep, Yahweh wasn't. Amen? Do you believe that as you go back to school, as you go out into your job, do you believe that there's a covenant, loyal you're just saying great is your faithfulness, great is my faithfulness. How many of you believe that there's a covenant living God today that knows the name of every person in your school? That knows all their background of their family. That knows where they came from. And he knows all their aunts and uncles. He knows every hair that's on their head. And he cares about them. He cares about every single man and woman in your office. Those that curse him. Those that never think about him. Do you believe that? Well, I want you to believe it because that's what this text is showing us. That's what Jonah is showing us. God's servant is sound asleep in the ship because he's living in a time of rebellion. And the reason he's fallen asleep is he doesn't like the fact that God likes and wants to reach really wicked people. That's what this whole book is about. Somebody came to me and said that they heard a preacher speaking in the book of Jonah. And the preacher used a great analogy for Assyria. He said they were the biker gang. They were the hell's angels of the ancient world. And if you'll think about the way the average American feels about a hell's angel biker gang, when they see them running down the road, and you think of the way a straight, normal person reacts to that, you'll understand why Jonah was running into Spain and is asleep in the bottom of his ship. Because he hates these wicked Assyrians. And to be honest with you, I don't relate very well to Assyrians. I don't relate very well to hell's angel biker gang. I do not relate really well when I when I worked construction in seminary, and I've shared this often with you. But I I was working as a carpenter's helper. It took me three weeks before I began to understand the grunts in between cuss words that meant "Go get a hammer," "Go get a saw," "Go get some nails." I mean, it was from they were from a different planet. It was the planet of the apes. And I was a Dallas seminary guy. I mean, I was studying Greek and Hebrew and theology and everything else. We were in a different world. And and I'm just being really honest with you. It was really easy for me not to care about those people. And I believe that there's people all over that you're going to meet this week that are thoroughly convinced that God and the Bible and Jesus want nothing to do with them. I'm going to say that again. I believe that you're going to meet people that you're working in your school that are thoroughly convinced in the depths of their soul that God and Jesus and the Bible could care less about in fact, that's why they reject you. Some of the ones that reject you the strongest, some of the ones that mock you the strongest because you come to church and because you claim to be one of these weirdo born-againers and these Jesus freaks and all that kind of stuff, some of the ones that are teasing you the most about that are the ones that are telling you, boy, am I hungry. Man, would I love to be able to believe that there's a, a great creator God that's out there. And what I want you to be gripped about in this story today, I'm really exercised about it this week because I was at a service where the clergymen came in and they wore special clothes and they spoke in special languages and, and they did the entire service. They did the entire service. No layman did any service. And it clobbered me as I looked around this audience because this audience, we were really hurting. And I'm still reeling from the loss of my neighbor. I mean, we're hurting. And I saw professionals, and they're well-meaning professionals, and I and I don't mean to put them down. But the thing that gripped me is that there was tremendous healing potential. There was tremendous reality. I know that there were people even sitting around me, people that could have brought tremendous comfort, people that could have brought tremendous help, but they were in a situation that was telling them, we're the minister's. We do the God thing. We do the holy thing. We do the ministry. And you step aside. This is real stuff, brothers and sisters. And I want to get across to you that you are the prophets. You are the priests. You are the ministers. I want you to really understand that. I want us to guard... The terrible thing that's happening, I think it's one of Satan's biggest lies, is the idea that there's a group of God professionals who are the ones that are really responsible to reach unbelievers. They're the ones that are really responsible to share the truth about God with unbelievers. There are the ministers and the professional clergymen that are supposed to really do this thing called getting the truth about God out, and that's a lie. You're the ministers. And oh, I want to pray that maybe today the Holy Spirit will wake you up. And the reason I want you to wake up is that one of the most exciting things that's going to happen in your life is for you to begin to realize that you're on a ship. And there's a horrible storm that's all around us. I mean, life seems to be floating along and then all of a sudden, Wham! The person that you thought had it all together, the person that you thought was so beautiful and and life could not be better, suddenly you find out that their life is literally coming unglued. There's terrible storms and waves that are breaking upon their life. And when you start to understand, I can be there for God. I can become a tool in God's hands. I can begin to help them and to reach them with the truth about God. And what Jonah chapter 1 is telling us is that unbelievers are not as bad as we think. I began to talk to you about that. The incredible message of the book of Jonah is not the message we hear in the book of Romans. The wrath of God revealed from heaven against all unrighteous of men. That's true. And that leads to Romans 3 that says, but God's righteousness and his love and his grace wants to be poured out upon all those that are under the judgment of sin. That's the truth. But Jonah tells us something really incredible that the creator God, the Lord of storms, the Lord that's ultimately sovereign over all things cares about those unbelieving sailors on the ship. That's what Jonah chapter 1 is about. And I want you to understand that if you'll start to pray every day, Lord, I want to be awake on the deck of the ship where you've placed me. I want to be awake at school. I want to be awake in my business. I want to live close to you. I want to be able to hear your voice in the word of God. And I want to be talking to you. I want to be living an authentic life with you. And oh God, I just want to be part of what you're doing in the lives of unbelieving people around me. And the deck of my ship, instead of being asleep in the hold of the ship, I want to be awake. And I want you to use me. And what you're going to find, you start talking to believers. may I pray for you you can open up a very easy way with your unbelieving friend just say that I'm a believer I believe in Jesus is there anything I could pray with you about and we as a, as a congregation start praying very specifically for the sailors that are around us on our ship and instead of being asleep and as they're crying out to all their gods they don't even know whether they're connecting we're going to be one that says hey I know a real God my God I'm, I'm, a, I'm a covenant person that's, where I, that's who I am I worship the God that's really there if I pray and really talk to him, things really happen. How many of you believe that? Well, that's what I want us to start to explode among our unbelieving friends. And that's scary to me because there's, there's a part of me that really wrestles with the fact that God will answer prayer. In fact, just to be really honest with you, this chapter is hard for me. There's a part of me that would be, I wouldn't be asleep in the middle of this ship. I would be analyzing the storm. And I would be saying, well, this is kind of a natural thing. I think the forces of evolution have kind of come unglued here, and I think we're in a material world. And and who knows whether there really is a coming to God? There's a part of me that would just try to physically analyze, and that's the world that you live in. I want you to realize that the dominant view in America, among the way that we live day by day, is the idea that we know all about the ocean. And storms happen because there's a difference between cold areas and hot areas. And the, the warmth of energy rushes into the vacuum of the cold areas. And that and if, and you get wind blowing over the surface area. And it begins to build up. It catches hold of these little ripplets on the water surface. And that begins to build over several miles. And then you get gigantic waves. In fact, the North Atlantic, like in the perfect storm, can produce an over 200-foot wave. And I know all about it. There's a part of me that's like that this book is saying to every one of you god knows all about it too he knows every scientific detail of the ocean but he not only knows all the details he created the ocean and the ocean obeys him when he speaks the ocean gets rough when he says become the ocean obeys and i want to tell you from the bottom of my heart i believe that how about you that's one of your greatest challenges today There's some of you businessmen and women, you think that life is just, you got it all figured out. You know all the computers programs. You know all the scientific details. You think that we're we're really in control of everything. You're not. You're not. Every single one of you, there's going to come a split second time where your life just ends. And you can go ahead and believe that that's just it. You're just part of the great energy field and you'll just disappear into the great energy nothingness. You can believe that, but you can't build meaning about that. You can't build society on that. You can't build human existence. You can't build nations. You can't build anything on that. It just will not work. And none of you will be able to hold it. When I come to visit you in the hospital and you're on the doorway of eternity, there's not one of you that will say, I'm just a bag of chemicals, Dave. Don't worry about it. I'm getting ready to pass into great nothingness. And I have great comfort as I lie in this bed because I know that i am become part of the great energy field of nature. I've never had anyone talk to me like that. Man, suddenly the person that hated my guts that wouldn't listen to what Dave was had to say from God's word for anything. Suddenly I'm in the hospital and they're holding my hand. They feel like they're going to squeeze my hand away. And they would say, please, David, give me some hope. This morning I want you to know from the book of Jonah, we've got hope. Somebody said yesterday, they repeated the phrase, Dave, I've heard you say over and over again, you're a committed supernaturalist. And I want you to know I'm a committed supernaturalist, but it's only by the grace of God. This chapter, I want you to join me. This chapter is about being a committed supernaturalist where there's a Yahweh, there's a creator that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 made the Mediterranean Sea. And he is now creating a great storm because he wants to write a great story of redemption. And I want you to believe with all of my heart that God wants to create storms and your unbelieving friends... He wants to take you through storms, and he's not trying to destroy you. He's not trying to drown you. But he wants to wake you up, and he wants to give you opportunity to reach Phoenician sailors, your unbelieving friends, that you could never reach in any other way. He wants you to start getting involved in this incredible process of believing in him as the great supernatural Lord. And then he wants you to be obedient to him. These sailors were much better than we think. As I read to you, the thing that strikes me about these sailors, they don't want to kill Jonah. Jonah's saying, kill me. Just throw me overboard. In 85 seconds, I'll take a spasmodic breath. I'll ingest all this water. You're not going to be able to do CPR on me. I'll be gone. And you're going to find out a lot of your unbelieving people, if you'll start to be friends with them, if you'll start interrelating with them, you're going to find out that there's some people that will want to be close to you. They'll care for you. They will not want to hurt you. They won't want to destroy you because God's common grace, the scripture teaches, is like the great God of the universe and the great God of history is moving in his common grace. And these sinners are a great example of that. They don't want to kill Jonah. But he says there's no other way. So they chuck Jonah overboard. And he disappears under the ocean waves. And as soon as they put him in the ocean, it becomes calm. Now, never in Sunday school did a teacher say to me at that point, that was the end of our Sunday school lesson, when I would learn this story in Sunday school. God calmed the sea, and we'd all clap our hands. Yay, Yahweh, you calmed the sea. Well, I was one of these really difficult Sunday school kids that would raise my hand, and I would say, wait a minute. Innocent man plunged into sea. Sailors pick up man, poof, throw him overboard. I got a problem with that. You tell me there's a great God Who's in control of everything? You mean to tell me that he just chucks innocent people into the ocean because he's trying to appease his wrath? When I talk to university students, some university student would raise their hand and say, Who wants to serve a God like that? Why didn't he just calm the sea? Why did he chuck one of his servants overboard? He's going to kill him. What justice is there in that? He makes innocent Phoenician sailors violently take someone else's life. Man, I knew this God of the Bible was some wicked, ancient, pagan God that needed to be appeased of his wrath. Some of you will even lose your faith over that, right? But you don't know the rest of the story. I want you to turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 12. You need to keep listening to God. Because when you listen to God, you get the rest of the story. And there's a couple times in the Old Testament where God asked people to do really strange things. One of them when he told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And we're not going to preach about that today, but that's another time when I really have trouble with God's command. God says to Abraham, kill the chosen son. And he makes his servant take Isaac up on a mountain, and he he just about kills him with a knife. Weird story. There's a very important reason why God told that story. Same dynamic is true in Jonah chapter 1. What I'm going to share with you in the next few minutes is why I really trust in Jesus and why I'm really a committed supernaturalist, because the twist in the story is so great that no human author would ever do this so well and so powerfully and do it in history, not just in the pages of a novel. Jesus is debating things over with his enemies in chapter 12 of Matthew, verse 38. Then some Pharisees. Those are the Jewish religious teachers, very committed to Judaism, very committed to God's laws. They're come to Jesus. It also says that some teachers of the law, those would be some specialists, probably in this case among the Pharisees who knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. So we've got the religious guys that are coming to Jesus. And they've got a very important question. They say, teacher, they come to Jesus with respect. They say, Rabbi, my teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. What they say is, where are the God inspectors? We are the ones that go out to the land, and when people claim to be doing God things, we examine the God things that they do, and we evaluate whether or not this is really a God thing. Now, the truth of the matter is, is that Jesus did many very incredible God things for these particular religionists. For example, in the book of John, he gives sight to a man that was born blind. You know, just lets him see. And these guys examine him. And they, you know, he comes before him and says, you know, they say, what in the world ever happened to you? He says, I don't even know who it was, but I met this man. And he said, you know, you can see And he says, I don't know anything about him. All that I know is that I used to be blind, but now I see So these religionists that are conducting this Messiah verification, they invite the guy's parents in. And they invite the guy's parents in and they say, tell us this is a trick. Tell us that your son wasn't born blind. Because nobody ever gets healed of blindness that was born blind. It's never happened. The parents say, we don't have any idea what happened. But we want you to know our son was born blind. We don't want to have anything to do with this, whoever this is. Because they were so scared of these religious they would throw them out. But even they are testifying to these religious. Listen, this man was born blind. When the case ends, the man who was born blind says... You know, all I know is I used to be blind, now I can see. Isn't that a good thing? And he says, I don't know who it is, but it must be a God thing. That's the way John's reasoning goes. These Pharisees and these teachers of the law, God wasn't being mean to them. God did one miracle after another. But what they want to do is they want to come to Jesus, put him on trial, and they say, all right, magician, do a trick. Let us see a trick. Let us see you do a miracle. And God won't do miracles like that because he's the king he's the great creator he only does what he wants to do very important to remember that he doesn't jump through hoops for our benefit and that's why jesus looks at these men and says you're not going to get a sign in other words you're never going to be able to come to me demand me to do a magic trick a miracle trick so that then you can have your faith totally verified it's not the way it's going to work because i want you to respond from your heart I'm going to talk to you deep in your heart, the Holy Spirit speaking in your heart, and I want to help you to really understand. But I'm not going to make it so that you're forced to believe in me, that there's just no other way that you can reject me. If you want to reject me, Jesus is saying you can reject me, and I want all of you to know that. And I want you to realize that you talk to your unbelieving friends, if they want to reject God, God will let them walk away. It's one of the incredible wonders of the infinite God of the universe. He wants you to decide... In a miracle of his giving love for you to say yes to him. And there's a great miracle in that wondrous interchange. And God does give you the gift of faith. Biblically, we must never take away from the personal dynamic of that interchange where God comes to you and tells the truth to you, but then leaves you space. In the wonder of intimacy, in the wonder of relationship, you have to decide. That's why Jesus said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. These Pharisees want to take faith away from the equation. They want to say, we want to see it. We want to see your kingdom right now. And if we see a miraculous, powerful demonstration of your kingdom, then we'll trust you. And Jesus says, I'm not going to do it. I don't work like that. Because your heart is hard. And you're not listening to my still small voice. But even with these hardened religious leaders, who are sometimes the hardest people to reach, Jesus did have a sign for them. And Jesus said, the reason I'm not going to do a sign is because you've already had one of the most powerful signs. Look what he says. A wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, this miraculous sign, but none will be given. Because it is enough, they're going to be given one sign, they're going to be given the sign except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. Look at this. Then he says this, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of of a huge fish. So the son of man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh are going to stand up and they're going to judge this generation. They're going to condemn this generation because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. They repented at the preaching of Jonah and now a greater than Jonah is in your midst. Brothers and sisters, those are some of the most powerful words that you can ever hear. You know what Jesus is saying? Jesus is like the rest of the story. It's like listening to a newscast that says, I want to tell you the rest of the story. Remember the problem that I raised? Great, righteous, pure, holy, just God commands sailors to throw victim into the ocean. Why did he ever do that? Why didn't he just come to sea? Because the Lord of heaven says, I've got a story I want to tell you. Because he's a great artist. Every great novelist, Tolstoy, John Grisham, not in the same ballpark as Tolstoy, but he's very popular. But every novelist you read, Agatha Christie and Mystery Stories, they always give you little hints about the main point of the story. Every great writer doesn't just spring the, the climax of their story on you. That's very unsatisfying. If you're reading a novel and suddenly the big crisis point comes and you have no preparation for it, there's no reason why it should have happened, you'll throw the book in the trash. What makes you like the story is as the great climax happens, you go, that's right. It's like it hits you. That's right. That's what was going on. And what Jesus is saying is that way back in the Old Testament, God, the great almighty Yahweh, loved some Phoenician sailors. He loved the biker gang in the Old Testament, the Assyrians. And God caused a terrible storm on the Mediterranean Sea. And God commanded some sailors to throw an innocent man into the ocean, into the belly of the ocean, and for certain death. And they did it. But it says in the next verse in Jonah, God prepared a great fish. And Jonah in the belly of that great fish lived. And the idea for three days and three nights, it's a Hebrew phrase that doesn't mean three literal 12-hour days and 12-hour nights. It's a phrase, like in the book of Esther, it mentions this same phrase, and it can, mean like, it can be used of a time period like Jesus. Day one, Good Friday when he died on the cross. First night, when he was in the belly of the earth on Friday night. Second day, Saturday. Second night, the night of Saturday. Third day, doesn't include another 12-hour night, but third day, Sunday morning, raised from the dead. And the same word, I can show you how that same word, like Esther in the book of Esther will say, I want you to fast for three days and three nights. And then I'm going to go in before the king. And she goes in before the king on that third day, before the third night. So it's just a phrase. It's, It's just the way language is used. As I teach people around the country and people write it from different parts of the world, that's the kind of thing they get all bent out of shape on. The big issue is not to get all hung up on the exact time period, The miracle is that the Lord kept Jonah alive in the belly of the fish. Now, how many of you have wrestled with, could God have done that? I could tell you stories about sailors who have caught a whale shark, cut him open, and found a sailor that had been swallowed a day before, and he's still alive, and they cut him out of all the slime, and they gave him artificial respiration. They kept him alive. I could tell you all kinds of stories about that. But what did I tell you early in this message? I am a committed supernaturalist. Eric is a submariner. Human beings in Connecticut have a metal tube, and Eric goes down in the metal tube, and he actually has the audacity to cook for over a hundred sailors. And none of you sit here and go, Oh, I don't believe that. You may tell me there's metal tubes that keep people alive for a, over a hundred days in the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Who would ever believe that? How stupid could you get? You're some kind of a fanatic. That's crazy. You know, a couple hundred years ago, if I told you we have a guy in our church that goes under the ocean in a, in a metal tube and they keep him alive for a hundred days, I would be put in the insane asylum. But when I talk to you, the kids are saying, man, when's this stupid mess going to be over? It's totally boring. <laughs> Don't you think if human beings made in the image of God can make submarines that keep sailors alive under the ocean? Don't you think the one that we're in his image, the great Creator that just speaks the word, makes Mediterranean oceans, makes continents, makes the stars, oh yes, I made the stars. Do you think that he has the ability to make a fish that can swallow Jonah and can keep him alive for three days, three nights, for that period of time? How many of you think that God can do that? You would think that the book of Jonah was about a whale that could swallow a man there's there's commentator commentator and liberal scholars tell me well that it's just got to be a story it could have never happened it's impossible for god to do that and i say to the liberal scholars why don't you just chuck the book of jonah out what's the big deal about god keeping a man alive in the belly of a fish at the bottom of the mediterranean sea if i'm going to reject christianity I'm not going to do it over something stupid. You know, maybe we'll find out that there's some weird old fish in the bottom of the Mediterranean that just loves to swallow people and then gurgle them up on the shore. <laughs> I'm going to tell you as we close today, you know what really troubles me about Christianity? Not a God that keeps Jonah alive for three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. You know what troubles me? If you're going to reject Christianity, please don't reject it over Jonah and the whale. That's stupid. If you want to reject Christianity, do it over something that has substance. you know what has substance? Jesus is saying, I am the son of God. That's what Jesus claimed. If I'm going to reject Christianity, I'm going to reject it over this. We have a Jesus who claimed, I lived with God forever and ever and ever. I am his only son. I am one with him. I'm equal to him. And I was born in the womb of a little Hebrew girl, a virgin Hebrew girl named Mary. Because I loved you. And I I revealed my father's will. I revealed my heart to you. I did miracles. I showed you that I was the great creator. I touched blind eyes. And then Jesus says an incredible thing. I'm going to let wicked, evil men, all that you think is evil in the world, pride and power and immorality and injustice, I'm going to let cruel, evil men just take nails and drive them right through my hand, right through my feet. And I'm going to hang on a cross. And I'm going to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all the world's going to become dark. Because I'm going to take your sins upon my body and my life and right inside of me. I'm going to suck in all the judicial punishment that a righteous God should pour out against sin. And I'm going to suck it into my body. And they're going to just take those nails out of my hands. They're going to lower me with a linen cloth. They're going to lower me into a tomb and Friday night and all day Saturday and all Saturday night, I'm going to lie in the pits of the grave. I'm going to die, really die. If you're going to reject Christianity, you should reject Christianity because it tells the most weird, the most unbelievable story imaginable. God, son died for you and for me. That is the, the crisis. It's the, it's the total, incredible, wondrous thing and if I'm going to reject Christianity, I'll reject it over the craziness of believing that if there is this great supernatural almighty creator of the sea, that this great almighty God would love me, a sinner, a wicked rebel against himself, so much that he would die for me. And then if you're going to reject Christianity, don't reject it because the belly of the fish got sick and threw Jonah up on the shore probably at Joppa again so he could start out again. If you're going to reject Christianity, reject it because of Easter. Reject it because we have a Savior. He didn't get swallowed by a fish. He got swallowed by death. That's the biggest enemy there is. Brothers and sisters, death is the biggest enemy that I wrestle with as a pastor. I have been there over and over and over again. When you're at the room or in a violent accident, death is the biggest enemy there is. It is a vicious, violent terrible dark enemy and it has a grip that is incredibly powerful i'm not strong enough to stop it to conquer it when my dad suddenly my dad was one of the strongest most powerful speakers he had it's a tremendous hold upon my life and i saw death grab a hold of my dad and with pneumonia just squeeze life out of him and i saw him stop breathing and he was gone death is a terrible thing and it's not pretty and beautiful music doesn't play it is a vicious curse if you're going to reject Christianity you should reject it over this because Jesus said just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish and then he came back to life again I am going to be in the grave for three days and three nights and I'm going to be the conqueror of death and Jesus rose again from the dead And the reason God had some unbelieving sailors that in the storm of the Mediterranean threw an innocent man in the water is that the great novelist of heaven was saying, one day the creator of all the oceans is going to see all of humanity just in troubled sea. And he's going to take his servant, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate man of God, he's going to chuck him into death. And death is going to grab a hold of his precious son. And on the third day, his son's going to rise again from the dead to live forever and ever and ever. If you're going to reject Christianity, that is the miracle that should turn you off about Christianity. But if you'll listen to the God that's really there, you won't reject Christianity because of that. You'll just get down on your knees and say, Oh, God, I want that Jesus to come and live inside of me. Because I know one day I'm going to get swallowed by death. That's what squeezes hope away. and dis- It makes despair. And it causes all of human life to become meaningless. And I want the Savior that can conquer death to grab a hold of my life. I want him to come and live inside of me. And as soon as you make that decision, you'll be free. You'll be forgiven. And the storms of your life, whatever they might be, can become calm. Because the God of the universe cares for Phoenician sailors, he cares for Jonah, he cares for your friend, and he cares for you. If you've never trusted Christ like that, right where you're sitting, what I want you to know is that what the story of Jonah, the story of the Bible, is not about joining any church. It's not about getting religious. It is about coming to a moment of decision in your life where you choose to just believe That God, your loving father, hurled his son into death for you. He took the penalty for your sins. He wanted to calm the terrible storm of wickedness and evil and separation from God. And when Jesus rose again from the dead, he comes to you today and says, if you'll just invite me to live in your life, if you'll trust me, if you'll turn away from your dependence upon yourself, and you're living for rebellion, if you'll just turn around and let my son come to live inside of you, and if you'll turn towards me, then I'll send my son to live inside you forever and ever. That's what it really means to receive Jesus. The big miracle is not that God can keep a man alive in the belly of a fish. The big miracle is whether or not you believe that he can cause his son to rise again from the dead and leave the tomb behind forever and ever. It's the whole bottom line. I just beg of you, my brother and sister, if you have never, never come to that moment in your life where it wasn't just a, a Sunday morning creed, it wasn't just something you were born learning about, it wasn't just something you recited in the Apostles' Creed, if you have never come to that moment where you've made your confidence that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that he rose again, If you've never come to that moment in your life where you have personally trusted in Jesus, in the quietness of your heart, do it now. Just say, dear Lord Jesus, I do believe that you died. I believe that you, Lord Jesus, were hung on that cross because you loved me. And you took the punishment that I deserve. And this morning I understand it. And I want you to come and live inside of me. And I'm going to believe that just like your word says that you rose into the third day and I believe that death could not hold you and you rose again from the dead and that's what I'm trusting in for my eternal life. We don't want anyone to miss the miracle of what it means to know Christ in a personal way.